Welcome to the seventh partnership show of Oregon Community Media. Oregon Community Media is an association of non-commercial radio stations working together to strengthen local independent media to better serve diverse communities. This time you'll hear about immigration issues. Participating are KSKQ in Ashland, KMUN in Astoria, KPOV in Bend, KBOO Portland, and KMUZ Turner and Salem. I'm Erin Yankee from KBOO, the collator and host for this episode. Stay tuned. Since the election of Donald Trump as president, immigrant communities, the politics of immigration and seasonal workers, and the issues of deportation, family separation, and detention have been the cause of protests, arrests, and have not left the consciousness of the Oregon community media listening audience. Today we'll talk about just some of the protests in support of immigrant communities and other issues around borders, incarceration, and legislation. First off, we'll start with a piece from KPOV in Bend, learning about the hunger strike that happened over a year ago at the North Oregon Correctional Facilities and grassroots solidarity actions by Gorge Ice Resistance. This is Bruce Morris. The following report was produced at the studios of KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Central Oregon. In May 2017, undocumented immigrant detainees went on hunger strike to protest inhumane treatment at the North Oregon Correctional Facility called NORCOR. NORCOR is a publicly funded county jail shared by four North Oregon counties. In 2014, NORCOR entered into a contract with the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, to detain undocumented immigrants. In solidarity with the hunger strikers, a group rose up in the Dalles, Gorge Ice Resistance. And this is their story about how dedicated local people, led mostly by single mothers with full-time jobs, who are not professional organizers and who are immigrants or family members of immigrants, grew a grassroots movement to support the hunger strikers and immigrants in general, opposed the ICE contract, and build a better, more inclusive community for all. I interviewed two founders of Gorge Ice Resistance, Rosie Strange and Amber Orion. Rosie, how did Gorge Ice Resistance get started? Amber and I started a group called the Gorgery Sisters. It was a moment where we were already having the conversation about how we can support our community because we very much need immigrants in our community. They're integral to the way of life that we have here in the Gorge. And then word of hunger strike came along and we realized there was an ICE contract here at our local regional jail. We decided that we needed to make a stand for the detainees that are so desperate for their conditions there, for their needs, that they felt that they could go without food. What were some of the conditions they were protesting? Some specific things that we have seen happen is the food that's being served having bugs in it, naps in the showers, they get two pairs of underwear to wear a week. They did not get hot meals. That was apparently changed to getting two hot breakfasts a week. They changed that after one of the hunger strikes. They're not given socks when they arrive. They actually have to ask for them from medical or they have to purchase them through commissary. They essentially get a pair of scrubs. And during the winter and during the summer, they keep it very cold in there. And so people are very, very cold. They don't have enough clothing or blankets or socks. That was Amber Orion. As a county jail, how appropriate is it for NORCOR to be used as a long-term detention facility? They are particularly unprepared and unable to care for people on a long-term basis. It is a short-term county jail. And so when people come into NORCOR and stay for months and months or even years, 
there's no access. Uh, the, before the first hunger strike, there was no access to any jobs. There's no in-person visits. There's no through-the-glass visits. So we're talking about people who are just locked in a cage 23 hours a day. They're not able to go outside. They're given nothing that human beings need. Were there also other reasons for the hunger strikes? The other thing that we hear a lot from the detainees and regularly is that they are fighting because they don't want this to happen to anybody else. They understand that this may or may not affect them directly, but they are fighting. They are going on hunger strike and risking them, themselves, their body, and their wellness in order to make sure that their children and their children's children don't have to walk through the same horrible, horrible things. Many in our nation and the world were shocked when we learned that immigrants were being separated from their parents at the border. Can you explain how this is also happening at NORCOR? Well, NORCOR has a contract to hold adult detainees as well as children detainees. We have had trouble gaining information about what those juvenile detainees are going through and getting them access to lawyers as well as clergy. We have heard word from detainees that haven't seen their family or spoken to their family in years. As a mother, I cannot imagine the stress and pain they feel of not knowing where their families are. In the face of all of this, what are your main goals? Continue to support and elevate the messages of hunger strikers to end the contract with ICE so that no one is living in the inhumane conditions that are provided at NORCOR. We are building community education here in the region to make people aware of what the ICE contract is and what the effects are for people inside. We've also built a community response team that works around people that have immigration fears or immigration needs as well as community needs. Let's talk about how you built Gorge Ice Resistance. Rosie and I have begun with the Gorge Resisters, and we had gotten together as two local groups to talk about um, what we could do to try to support this. And then from there, between Gorge Ecumenical Ministries, Gorge Resisters, Rural Organizing Project, who were the three main groups in the very beginning, um, we then started to pull through our contacts just people from different groups. And it was really amazing to see how many people were really interested This first meeting that we had had, which would have been the day before we um, showed up for the first rally, I think by that time we had probably gotten maybe 12 local groups together to start working on this. A lot of what you've done at Gorge Ice Resistance is classic grassroots organizing. Can you talk about that aspect of your development? From day one, we have done a lot of outreach through media, social media, and then a lot of grassroots connections, honestly. We continue to reach out and talk to people. We've held info sessions, just really continuing to do one-on-one, small group, living room session, grassroots outreach, and talking to people and, and inviting people to get involved. We really try to show up for other groups and the things that are connected because this immigration issue is so much larger than just what's happening, of course, at NORCOR. So, yeah, we've, it's been really incredible to watch. How many people are really interested in, in showing up and getting together and saying this is enough, we won't do this anymore? How often do you hold actions at NORCOR? Every single day. We are there every day. We're coming up on day 500. We've been there every day, including Christmas and other holidays. We've been there in three feet of snow. We were there through the Eagle Creek fires. We're there every day. If the detainees are there, we're there. And we've decided that if they have to live every single day, every single hour, every single minute in that facility, the least we can do is make a public awareness that they're there every single day. And we show up and we keep showing up and we figure it out as we go. Why was it so important for you to call yourself Gorge Ice Resistance? That's what our job was in that moment. We needed to resist what was already happening. This is a systemic problem. We're being told this is the law, this is the way it should be, this is just how it is. 
that's BS. We, we, we refuse. No, we're not going to allow balancing of budgets on the back of our friends and neighbors and family and human beings. And we felt like we needed to show our community members that we were going to be resisting. We were going to be fighting for them. Gorge Ice Resistance has grown considerably in its 500-plus days. What have been some of the benefits of that growth for Gorge Ice Resistance and the statewide movement to support immigrants? As this issue has grown in the media, what's been really incredible is that we've been able to work with other groups who have reached out to us and said, okay, now we've got something going on in our community that's similar to what you guys have going on. How did you start? What are you doing? How can we do this? How can we be successful? And that's been really cool because then we've been able to collaborate with other groups of people who are wanting to do the same thing in their local area. And not only do we become a larger coalition, but then we're really we're working with one another and the ideas just really start flowing and the things start to change and then gorgeous resistance grows. But really what I feel like is gorgeous resistance has grown to just be a large coalition that includes many other groups around the state who are essentially fighting the exact same battle just in their area. And it feels like the most beautiful thing to see because most of us are single moms in our leadership team and most of us, well, all of us have full-time jobs outside of our activism. And most of us on our team either are immigrants or are very close friends and or family are immigrants as well. So this, you know, this affects, this is all of us. Well, we all feel the need to protect each other in our communities is where it essentially started. If Gorge Ice Resistance got everything you wanted, what would that look like? It would look like a community that accepts and understands that immigrants are a part of us. It would look like a welcoming community where we are able to accept each other and allow each other to survive and thrive with our families in safety. I would like to see ICE absolutely out of NORCOR. I would like to see ICE abolished altogether, absolutely 100%. I would absolutely like to see children back with their families and parents back with their children. And like Rosie said, I would like to see our family members and our community members feel safe. I would like them to be able to drive down the street without being uh, pulled over and harassed by the police and be able to just go to the store and get their groceries and come home and be with their families. That's what Gorge ICE Resistance would like to have happen. On September 13th, Gorge Ice Resistance marked their 500th consecutive day of actions at NORCOR. There have been some improvements to the inhumane conditions at NORCOR, and Gorge Ice Resistance is building awareness that is putting pressure on officials at NORCOR and other county jails to end their contracts with ICE. To anyone who wonders whether Gorge Ice Resistance may be growing weary or thinking about giving up, here is Amber Orion. We will resist this all the way till the end. This report was produced by KPOV 88.9 FM, High Desert Community Radio in Central Oregon. Thanks to Bruce Morris. Now we'll hear from Melanie Zermer of KMUZ Turner and Salem, who takes us back to June 2018, when folks gathered outside the federal prison at Sheridan, Oregon, to protest the detention of 127 men. On Sunday, June 24th, several hundred people showed up at the Sheridan Federal Prison to show support for 125 men who were being detained there for having crossed the U.S. border illegally. Some crossed to seek immigration status. Some crossed to seek asylum for themselves and their family because their home country had been racked with violence and is unsafe to raise their families. A coalition of people of faith met at the park just outside of the barbed wire fence of the federal prison. We could see the prisoners through the windows, and they could see us. Among prayers, songs, and chants, I was able to talk to some of the people there and what the group was seeking. 
Here is Reverend Rick Davis, minister from the Universalist Unitarian Church in Salem. Right. We're, well, this was organized by the uh, Interfaith Immigrants' Right Organization called Emerge, and we are protesting the unjust detainment. There are 123 detainees here uh, who were coming across the border, some of them with their families, some of them seeking asylum, and they were uh, detained, and, and many of them were taken away from their, their children and brought here. And we're calling for an end to this policy of detaining those who come across the border for asylum and also those who come across uh, for immigration rights. So it's a, uh, a really complicated issue, but we are uh, aghast at this policy that has uh, enabled the government to simply throw people in prison for simply seeking a better life. Uh, we're particularly heartbroken at the instance of the children being separated from their families. And the current policy now will simply allow children to be detained with their, with their parents. So children are going to be, innocent children are about to be placed in prison according to uh, President Trump's zero tolerance policy. Right. So with, we're calling, uh, with their parents, but still in a prison right, setting. Is still that correct? in a prison. Right, yeah. So uh, we're calling for an end to this zero tolerance policy. Mm-hmm. And to, at, 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 at least for now, go back to the policy before, which was people register and they have a date. There's over uh, 90 of uh, most of the people who come in and have a date in court will come back for it. They don't, they don't, it's catch and release is, is Bush's term for it. It's not what's happening. Uh, people simply are allowed to live their lives while they're waiting for their, so, their cases to be decided. And, and within the community, not in a detention center. Right, right. And what do you say to people who say, well, these people are coming over here illegally, they broke the law? I say that people are trying to protect their lives. To say that, uh, to, to protect your life, to protect the life of the children, to say that you're breaking a law by doing that, then the law needs to change. The law needs to change. The impetus for the, the theological impetus for this service was uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions quoted scripture and says that you're required to obey the law. He was quoting from uh, Romans 13, I believe, and it, it was like quoting out of context because further down in that in that same chapter it says the law is grounded in love. And any law that's not grounded in love, a law that's grounded in fear and hatred and bigotry. <laughs> needs to be resisted. If you look through, if you look into the windows of the prison, you can see some of the prisoners see us and they wave back. They're aware that we're here. They're aware that we've come to have a worship service outside of the federal penitentiary. They're hopeless inside there. It must feel so hard to be inside a prison, to be taken away from your family, to not know what the future holds. Uh, it's so sad. And we're hoping that our presence here will remind them that there are people outside who do care. I noticed a large Sikh presence and talked to one man about the reason they were there. Later, I talked with two women who were sisters of the Holy Name. Actually, the fundamental rights of Sikhs are uh, to protect every humankind, no matter whether they're believers or not. Uh, we must stand together uh, regardless of whatever your faiths are, uh, because we as Sikhs, we see every human as a uh, light of the Creator. So we, we must, regardless whether they believe in the same or not, doesn't matter. So we must be supporting whatever. But how many people would you say showed up for this today? I don't know. It was in the hundreds. I was here Monday, and there were 1,200 of us, so it's a big crowd. 
Wonderful. 1,200 people were 1245 here Monday. 1,245 Monday we were here. Wow. And who is the we? All the people or are you with an organization? Well, we're with many, many organizations. Unidos here in McMinnville, the Interfaith uh, uh, Justice Community from Portland, Oregon. There were people from Eugene, people from Hood River. They were from all over, and I think the same today. Mm-hmm. Right. We're Holy Name Sisters, Sisters of the Holy Names of Jesus and Mary at Merrillhurst. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have a special regard for immigrants, and we just wanted to take part in this and mm-hmm. join with everyone else of faith and make a difference. Yeah. So what would you have to say about why you're here? Are you part of the same organization? I'm part of the same organization and um, feeling a very strong need to speak out about the unjust uh, system that we're subject to. It's not right. There's nothing moral about it. And I'm here with my body to say that. Finally, I wanted to know what two men thought about the gathering. The men were not part of the gathering, but at the park, simply fishing. And although you weren't here for the rally, you were simply fishing. Beautiful job, by the way. Nice trout, right? Yeah, yeah. Nice. So what do you think about what was going on today? To be honest, I don't really have too much of an opinion on it. Um, Really, I guess because I'm not affected by it. but I guess if I had more information on it. Um, so are they just cross the border illegally? And right, they're asylum seekers. A lot of them are running away from countries okay. uh, because of the violence in their own country. They're just seeking a better place for their families. They come to the border, and um, because there's been a recent policy, has been now rescinded, but there is a policy that they were taking the kids away, and, and the parents were housed in prisons, and I don't know what, nobody knows what well, they Well, honestly, I don't think it's right to, to take away, you know, take, if they're a main provider, their man or whatever, to take away from their families. Um, Mm-hmm. But in another sense, I guess if you know if it's against the law to do that, then you know. Yeah. What would you do if you were being persecuted in your country, and the only way to save your family was to run to the United States, even though it was illegal? That's a tough one. Um, I'm not sure. This is Melanie Zermer reporting for KMUZ. Well, I'm at Wake Up. Thanks, Melanie. Next up in the Oregon Community Media Collaborative show on immigration issues will be a piece on the Occupy ICE encampment that happened in Portland. This audio is an excerpt of a full show hosted by Jamie Partridge and Amanda Hill of KBOO's Labor Radio on the encampment, which started June 17, 2018. The first voice you'll hear is Jamie Partridge. I'm Jamie Partridge with my co-host here, Amanda Hill. Hello, Jamie. And our guests, Juno Suarez and Jesse Joseph, organizers at the Occupy ICE PDX encampment. Hello, Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Hey, Amanda. Thanks for having us on. So, Juno and Jesse, tell our listeners what has been happening at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office at 4310 Southwest McAdam Avenue, starting the evening of June 17th. So June 17th, there was a vigil uh, organized by a couple of groups that was in front of the ICE building there. And uh, it was sort of your standard fare. We had some speakers uh, get on the mic and tell stories about the the horrors that were going on um, by ICE, both locally and and across the country. When that wrapped up, however, there were a couple of people who didn't feel like it was appropriate to be going home back to to their beds when so many uh, families and children were not able to do that because they were still in ICE custody. So that night, a number of folks uh, brought tents and decided to camp out and then put out a call for other people to, to come on down. 
And over the next couple of days that week, uh, it really grew uh, and expanded to the point where uh, by the end of the day on Tuesday, the ICE employees ended up uh, requiring a, a police escort to go home. And then the following morning on Wednesday, uh, they decided just not to open the facility at all. Yeah, so after that, um, the building was actually closed for, for 10 days. So we effectively stopped um, the functioning of this ICE facility for, for a whole 10 days, which, which I think is a, is a huge um, accomplishment. Um, from there, you know, the camp has existed for, for um, over a month now. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there were, there, uh, a while ago there, was, there were reports that it was swept and, um, and that DHS police officers came and, and shut the whole thing down. That's not true. Um, the whole camp is there, and they're... Um, there are people there uh, at all times, and there are resources, there's food, um, and it's, it's, it's a great community um, and, a, and a center for organizing. Why do you think this happened now? I think the presence of the family separations and the zero-tolerance policy in the news, this really kicked off following a week of intense media coverage and scrutiny and public outroar about what was going on. So I think there was a lot of demand and public awareness for some sort of action. So when the camp sprung up and the call went out for people to come down and occupy, I think it's something that people felt compelled to do. And we really saw that, especially in the first week with so many people coming through and offering support and asking how they could help and get involved. It really was an organic explosion of, of activity around the camp. Yeah, and I think there's just something with uh, the family separation. There's something really visceral about, about when children are being oppressed. And you kind of saw the same thing uh, in 2014. The Second Intifada in Palestine um, happened because two children were shot on the beach uh, by Israeli forces. There's just mass outpouring when, when it's children who are, who are bearing um, the brunt of oppression. Children's and family are so important, and it, it brings to mind um, when we did the Occupy Wall Street. How does Occupy ICE build on the experience of the Occupy um, Wall Street movement and on the overall resistance to the horrors of the Trump agenda? I think the comparison with Occupy Wall Street uh, is an easy one for people to make because of the name, but a very large difference in this movement uh, is that the occupation is really just a tactic. We've tried a lot of other things in terms of, of rallies and things to raise awareness, and really this is sort of the next escalation. The government is doing things here that we don't agree with, and we're not going to leave until, uh, until they listen to it and stop and end the zero tolerance policy and abolish ICE. So the occupation really is a tactic, but we've already seen uh, that it's growing much beyond just the occupation, and really it's turning into uh, this movement around abolish ICE and the demand uh, to end these entire uh, apparatus around enforcing our racist immigration laws in this country. And how do you see it connected with the overall resistance to the Trump agenda? That I, I think that's a big question, and and so the past you know two years um, we've seen a lot of mass outpourings of, of just frustration, um, but also just righteous, righteous frustration um, and and resistance against the Trump agenda. This I think has a lot of staying power. Um, first of all, like the, the the demand to abolish ICE is something that has the power to to stay on people's minds. The issues, I mean, obviously all these issues are terrible, but. Um, this is just something that, that people see now as, as, as something that needs to be addressed right away. Um, and that's why this is kind of um, a battery for, for um, the larger movement to, uh, to, to abolish ICE. That was a short piece recorded at the beginning of the six-week protest against the cruel actions of ICE, as well as the existence of ICE. 
Thanks to Labor Radio at KPU. You are listening to a collaborative program by Oregon Community Media looking at the immigration issue across Oregon. The first half of the show, we focused on the protests around the state against ICE. Now we'll hear from people doing other kinds of work organizing for immigrant rights. This is an interview with the Oregon DACA Coalition by Melanie Zermer of KMUZ, Turner, and Salem. One organization that's here to help undocumented youth navigate the system and advocate on their behalf is the Oregon DACA Coalition. And I'm here with Leo Reyes, co-founder of the coalition. Welcome, Leo. Hi. What is DACA? How did it start? And what does it do for undocumented youth? It was an executive action enacted by President Barack Obama in 2012. Um, Basically, what it did was that for youth who um, had been brought to the United States before the age of 15, um, had been here, I believe, at least five consecutive years at the time that it was enacted, who had uh, no significant criminal records to be able to apply for temporary relief from deportation and to apply for a work permit. And so those two things, even though they sound really simple, are um, you know, completely, uh, completely changes your experience as an undocumented as far as the things that you're able to do within our society. Um, you know, for me, what that meant was accessing driver's licenses in the state of Oregon. And so to be able to, to drive freely, to be able to apply for a social security number, which means, you know, the ability to work wherever you're qualified to work, really then to pursue education as well. Uh, so to be able to go to college, to be able to pursue a degree, then to be able to use that degree. And then, you know, pretty much everything else in between that comes in association with having an ID and having a social security number, whether that is building a credit score, uh, being able to apply to rent an apartment, apply to get some sort of car loans, Mm -hmm. uh, being able to establish credit, like, you know, really basic things that I think sometimes we take for granted. What's the maximum age one can be to still be eligible for a DACA? So I believe uh, you had to be under the age of 31. What What did that mean when President Trump um, rescinded the executive order? So when he when the announcement was made that the uh, the executive order was rescinded, uh, people were given 30 days so that if your DACA permit uh, expired within the, the following six months. Uh, you had 30 days to submit a renewal. And pretty much anybody else who expired beyond that point was no longer allowed to renew. Um, and so um, throughout that time, those 30 days, um, you know, we worked very hard to try and find funds within the community so that we can then give people the opportunity to pay for those work permits. So we just try to encourage anybody who was eligible for the reapplication process to apply then. The federal court decided to partially reinstate the program later on where people could renew their DACA, um, but no new applicants could apply for the program. What we're talking about really is some of the action that the Oregon DACA Coalition took. But really what we haven't talked about yet, Leo, is how the Oregon DACA Coalition uh, began. So why don't you tell us that story? Yeah, so it really started the day after the election. A large portion of our community was feeling the sense of uncertainty as to what was to come with the new Trump presidency. Uh, There was a specific sense of uncertainty within our undocumented community and within the, you know, the community of DACA recipients, because we had built our lives on this temporary sense of relief. And based on what had been stated throughout the campaign trail for now president Trump, um, 
we knew that that was very likely to to go away and so you know i I remember having a conversation with a really close friend of mine who's not a daca recipient um and uh saying like well the he's president and you know the response really being well you know it's just four years um and that's really where i understood there was this huge disconnect right with between our larger community and what we were going through as undocumented youth who had this this very fragile sense of stability um and so i you know i ended up reaching out to my sister i ended up reaching out to really close friends to just meet up the next day and just have dinner and have a conversation as to how we were feeling and from there we decided that we needed to do something and you know that we needed to start organizing and so that's really how it started and i don't consider myself to be extroverted or um never really consider myself to just be like a community leader um but sometimes those things uh come out of necessity what are some of the things that the Oregon DACA Coalition has been involved in? So uh, the first thing that we decided to do was to do a campaign to um, do basically just community information. To how do we establish a platform to have a conversation with our community so they can come and ask questions, right? Because a lot of people don't really understand what it means to be undocumented. A lot of people have a conversation about immigration very conceptually without understanding that it's a reality in their community and in their spaces. And so we decided to create the Purple DACA Letter Campaign. We hosted forums where we invited the community to come. We had a panel so that we could, you know, share our stories, but also to allow the community to ask questions that they had. Um, From there, we collected letters. Um, We thought initially they were going to put those letters in purple envelopes and mail them out to our representatives. But what ended up happening was that we actually... Uh, it was suggested that we took those, take those letters and deliver them to our representatives during town hall meetings, mm-hmm. which was a lot more direct. And so we ended up going to our first town hall uh, with Kirk Schrader at North Salem High School um, in front of like five to 700 people. Um, and so we decided to, to stand up, make a statement and, you know, deliver these letters in person. And then we found out that that was a great platform to not only just have direct contact with our federal representatives, but also to reach out to a larger community who were attending these town halls. Oregon DACA Coalition is a big support network mm-hmm. for people who are undocumented youth. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so, you know, when it comes to advocacy, I think it, there's different levels to it. So you're talking about a, a portion of someone's identity that has been, for the most part, hidden, and hidden from their close friends, hidden from their you know, their teachers, um, but at the same time, it's completely impacting and directing their life. I think most people think about that experience of like when you turn 16 in high school and, you know, um, teenagers are excited about going and getting their driver's license, right? And that's really like that first barrier that you encounter as a young adult to really understand what it means to be undocumented. So suddenly you don't have access to that. And then your friends are, you know, driving or getting driver's licenses and then they're asking you questions as to like when are you going to get your driver's license and you have to lie and you have to like make up stories or you have to pretend to some extent to to be lazy or careless about it because you don't really know how to have that conversation with them um you know then after that stage then comes the um what are you going to do after high school um and so then you know when you start looking at the possibilities of going to college realize that you have all these additional barriers that you have to go through 
um, that, you know, before DACA made it virtu virtually impossible to go to college. Um, and you, so then you would kind of start falling behind and start to see yourself fall behind mm -hmm. uh, from your peers. You know, we always talk about the fear of being undocumented, right? And sometimes um, we want to have a conversation about just maybe letting go of that fear. But that fear is very real. And that fear is, you know, the, the fear that you might tell someone who then might change their perception about you. And mm -hmm. so we have had young adults who come into our spaces who said, you know, once I really told my peers and my really good friends, you know, this part about my identity, who I was, then suddenly they weren't kind to me anymore. Suddenly they weren't my friends anymore. And that baffles me because I don't understand why it would change someone's perception of who you are, especially when you think you guys are very close friends and they know a lot about you, but it does, you know, if someone gets mad at me, if something happens that, you know, then I might run the risk of somebody reporting me to immigration, you know, and even more so is who is also tied to my existence as an undocumented immigrant who might be affected by that. So we're talking about your family, you're talking about mm -hmm. your parents, you're talking about your siblings. And so it can be, it can put you in a very vulnerable place. Another thing that the Oregon DACA Coalition does, they help people navigate the paperwork and whatnot to become uh, registered under DACA and as well as to renew. Tell me some of, something about that. Yeah, so I mean, through the Purple DACA Letter Campaign, we were collecting letters our community really responded to very positively and they started, you know, wanting to do more. So they started donating money. And because we are all volunteers, we weren't expecting that because we never really went out to fundraise. And so once we started getting some funds, we really decided the best thing to do with that money was to turn that back to the community and to give it in the form of scholarships so that people could pay those $495 to renew their DACA application. We also occasionally provide support to help um, young folks fill out their renewal forms. Really what we've been trying to do um, and what we're trying to do at this point is to set up DACA renewal clinics where we can have attorneys uh, work with young adults for on a pro bono basis to help them complete those forms. Mm -hmm. So since you've been around, you've uh, held forums, got letters out to your federal representatives, uh, held a number of rallies, mm -hmm. and are um, helping people both um, emotionally as well as legally through the system. Is there anything that, that we haven't talked about, Leo, that you would want listeners to know about Oregon DACA Coalition? Well, we've also um, affiliated with one of the national organizations called United We Dream. And so they lead the national effort. Um, they really kind of bring different groups like ourselves in different states together. We are getting training through United We Dream, and we are training, um, or at least providing the space for people to step up into this, these leadership roles. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that's been like the most beautiful aspect about doing this work. I think it would be great if you gave our listeners a place where they could get more information. Yeah, so um, you can reach our website at oregon.org. Um, I, but I think the most important thing is just how do you people engage, right? So, like, we are constantly asked to share our stories. The real question that our community should be asking is, okay, now that I have asked someone to share this very personal thing about themselves, is what am I doing to make sure that we are progressing? I've been talking with Leo Reyes, one of the co-founders of the Oregon DACA Coalition. This is Melanie Zermer, KMUZ-Turner, with Oregon Community Media. Thanks to Melanie. Next up in the Oregon Community Media Collaborative show on immigration will be from KMUN in Astoria, 
We'll hear from them about undocumented immigrant health issues. This is Joanne Rideout from KMUN Astoria 91.9 FM with Oregon Community Media. Today I'm talking with Astoria resident Norma Hernandez about undocumented immigrant health care and ICE enforcement. Norma is a well-known public figure in Astoria. She's chair of the Astoria Parks and Recreation Advisory Board and also chairs the board of the nonprofit North Coast Food Web. She's a board member with the Astoria Downtown Historic Business Association and the nonprofit Astoria Co-op. She's lived in Astoria for over 15 years. Norma is an American citizen who hails from Puerto Rico. She lived in Boston for many years, working in insurance and finance. She originally came to the North Oregon coast for a holiday visit and was offered a job as HR director for a seafood cannery in Pacific County, Washington. Norma was ready for a change, and her business and Spanish language skills were invaluable in her new job, as she learned about the problems facing employees at the cannery who were primarily Latino immigrants. It kindled an interest in social justice that has guided her work ever since. She served as the executive director of the Lower Columbia Hispanic Council. She currently works for the Clatsop County Health Department in outreach programs like WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. I talked with Norma recently about how stepped-up activities by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, are affecting Latino clients who often rely on the health department for vital services. Norma said these days, less than 10% of the clients the health department serves are Latino. It used to be more about 15%. And the reason is they're very scared. This is an institution that is a government institution. And even though that I need the service, I don't know if ICE is going to be there. So for them, it's very um, troublesome and worrisome just to walk in to get some services that he might need for their health because they don't know what's going to happen. And it could be the misunderstanding because it's a government building that we somehow link to the federal agency that it could cause some damage to them, and which we are not. Norma said immigrants' fears are well-founded because sometimes ICE agents are waiting outside in the street. The courthouse is just down the road from the health department. It happens a lot, actually, around the court. They usually, you see ICE here on 8th Street, and Duane, just around the court, if they know that it's a Latino, that he has some case that they need to go, it could be, you know, a DUII or any kind of th- times that they need to go into the court system and ICE knows about it. They're going to be hanging out outside. It used to be that they were uh, a little m- bit more undercover. No, now they're not. Their jackets says ICE in the back. They are very open and not even um, trying to be respectful of kids or families. So because we are so close to the court uh, and they know that a lot of the people who have been picked up by ICE, it happens in that, in that area, I believe that they are very scared to go to the health department. She said the net effect is that Latinos in general have gone into hiding, and that's a big step backwards. I thought between 2008 and 2016, we have come so far ahead in the community trying to integrate the Latino community with the rest of the other community that doesn't feel threatened. I thought we had made great strides, that they were hiding less, 
that they were even more involved, that we tried them to say, yes, do the census. We need to know who you are so we can provide services. We need to know how we can help you. And then all of a sudden, boop, everybody is hiding again. And when people stop showing up for court dates and needed health services, there are long-term consequences. And if something does go wrong, the only clients Norma can hope to help are the ones with absolutely clean records to save them from being deported. It is a catch-22. And I, I don't even know what I would do if I was in that situation. I don't know how I would react. I don't know which one is the lesser of the two evils. Like I'm trying to be responsible here and go what I'm supposed to do, but it could cost me dearly. And usually what I tell the families that I work with, it is like, don't do anything wrong. <laughs> you know, don't speed, don't drink and drive, you know, like we used to say, just keep your nose clean, you, you know, just do everything as you are supposed to be doing because you don't want to run that small chance of getting um, just caught in a situation that you have to end up in a court. Since undocumented Latino immigrants often face great hardship traveling to and remaining in the U.S., I asked Norma why they continue to come to this country. Many different reasons. It could be civil wars. And always people think that the only people who are here are Mexicans. No, we have people from all Central America that they have civil wars, that they are very unsafe. A lot of people from Mexico that come, also they are escaping from a drug-infested area. Or they have had somebody from their family that they have been either kidnapped or murdered or disappeared, economic reasons. Norma said most are seeking a better life they cannot find in their own countries. She hears other American citizens sometimes dismiss current immigrants' concerns by saying their relatives came here legally generations ago. When she hears that, she refers to the Immigration Act passed in 1924, enacted to stem the flow of immigrants to the U.S. My issue sometimes, Joan, is that people say, my parents came here legally, or my ancestors. I always follow that up with what year was that. And the reason I tend to get snarky and ask for the year is because before 19, I believe it was 1925, there were no immigration laws. You just register on Ellis Island. That's all you did. But nobody asked for a visa. Nobody asked for a permission to come here. You just got on a boat because it was a great new land that it could be opportunities, and you came, and your family came. That is the only way. Don't tell me you had a visa because you didn't. So we, we need to learn to really be more honest to ourselves about what coming here legally meant. In 1952, the U.S. passed more restrictive legislation in the form of the Immigration and Naturalization Act. That law passed despite a veto by President Harry Truman, who said then, quote, We do not need to be protected against immigrants. On the contrary, we want to stretch out a helping hand to save those who have managed to flee, to succor those who are brave enough to escape from barbarism, and to welcome and restore them against the day when their countries will, as we hope, be free again, unquote. Truman was overruled by legislators like Senator Pat McCarran of Nevada, who instead echoed then-popular sentiments that sound frighteningly familiar to what we hear now from some lawmakers. 
McCarran said in 1952, quote, I believe that this nation is the last hope of Western civilization, and if this oasis of the world shall be overrun, perverted, contaminated, or destroyed, then the last flickering light of humanity will be extinguished, unquote. Current U.S. immigration laws have grown from this 1952 act. And if you go and look at the books now to try to come here legally, it's a process that it will last between 10 to 20 years. If my family is hungry now, if my neighbors and my neighborhood is just getting completely eliminated by drug-infested cartels, I cannot wait 10 to 20 years to try to have a better life. I need to do whatever I need to do now. At the Clatsop County Health Department, Norma worries about catastrophic consequences when large numbers of people are afraid to show up for basic services they need to remain healthy. She reassures clients that the health department is doing all it can to keep them safe. You know, it is okay. It is safe. We want to help you. We are here to protect you and because you we are about protection and prevention so just come to us it's okay i think one of the things that people need to understand ice and this is for everybody even at your home and your business ice just cannot come in into your place and walk in that is just not the way it works you have to allow them to come in so if it's something that i can tell anybody that is listening to is like if ice anybody from that federal agency come and knocks on your door and says may i come in you say no what do you need and if they need someone they need to have a judge sign warrant with the name of that person and it is your responsibility to go get that person and give it to them but that's it. You never allowed anybody to go into your business. The same way if they go to public health and say, can we come in? No, you may not. Norma said despite the health department's efforts to provide needed services, she knows Latino families are struggling in many ways. And while she feels fortunate to be an American citizen herself, she feels deeply for her fellow Hispanic neighbors. Smile at them. You know, when you see any of us, just smile. It doesn't cuss, so we don't feel like we are offending somebody just because of our mere presence. Just a smile at you people say hola. We all can say hola and just keep going. But, you know, those judgmental looks that sometimes we give are, it's so just empathy and compassion, I guess, is all I can ask from my community. This is Joanne Rideout from KMUN Astoria 91.9 FM with Oregon Community Media. Our last piece was produced by KSKQ and Ashland in Medford. Here's Connie Saldana. This is Connie Saldana from KSKQ, 89.5 and 94.1 FM in Ashland and Medford in Jackson County, Oregon. Oregon Ballot Measure 105 is being watched very closely by immigrant advocates. This measure, proposed by three state representatives, would repeal Oregon's sanctuary law, which was put into law originally in 1987. It was confirmed again by vote of the people in 2017. The current state statute forbids state agencies, including law enforcement, 
from using state resources or personnel to detect or apprehend persons whose only violation of the law is that of federal immigration law. Ballot Measure 105 would allow any law enforcement agency to use agency funds, equipment, and personnel to detect and apprehend people whose only violation of the law is a violation of federal immigration law. Immigration advocates urge a no vote on Measure 105. Groups registered in opposition to the measure include Oregonians United Against Profiling, Oregons for Sanctuary, and Oregon Right to Health and Defend Oregon. One group is registered as Yes on 105. That is Repeal Oregon Sanctuary Law Committee. I notice a couple others are signed on in the voter's manual. Stop Oregon Sanctuaries and Oregon for Immigration Reform. We don't have an interview with someone in favor of Measure 105. However, one of the initiators, Representative Sal Esquivel, who happens to be from the KSKQ neighborhood, states, It's time that Oregon complies with federal law like it should have in the first place. If you want to become an American, become an American. If you want to come here for economic advantages and do it illegally, then I don't think you belong here. We'll hear parts of an interview with two people who oppose Measure 105. Virginia Camberos is Regional Director for Rogue Valley Chapter of Unite Oregon, and Alessandra de la Torre is bilingual organizer also for uh, Unite Oregon in the Rogue Valley. They're being interviewed by Dave Hyde on his KSKQ show, We the People. The interview begins with Alessandra. Right now, the top priority is to defeat Measure 105. Since by November 6, you know, we want people to have their votes in and really research all the measures, but specifically Measure 105, because it's trying to really take away a law that's been in place for 30 years, which is an anti-racial profiling law. It protects our resources, like our personnel, equipment, law enforcement, from going out and trying to apprehend people that they perceive to be undocumented. So really, this introduces racial profiling. Anyone, any, any person of color is then going to be a target for law enforcement to then pull over and just assume of, oh, let me see your papers. I want to know your legal status. And that's discrimination and racial profiling is very harmful. Whether you're documented or undocumented, it stays with you. It starts to feel like you have a lack of belonging in the place you've been in for since you were born even, you know, or since you're 20 years and you're taking your kids to school and you're working hard and you're paying your taxes and still you're not able to have your driver's license. And then now you have an even bigger fear that if local law enforcement pull you over, they may start discriminating and asking you for your legal status. So that for me is the biggest because there's youth that's going to be extremely affected. There's children that are going to be affected. There's families that are going to be separated, all for a problem that doesn't exist. This measure is not fixing anything. There's already a law in place that if someone's committing a criminal violation and whether they're documented or undocumented, they go through the same process of law enforcement takes care of it, they get to work with federal immigration agents 
to apprehend the person and to go through the process because the person committed a criminal violation. So it's not that our community is unsafe right now. If the measure passes, then law enforcement is now focusing on a whole nother responsibility rather than focusing on local crimes. Many rural counties in Oregon don't even have a full-time 911 service. That's something that I believe should be a priority rather than allocating our funds into now adding on the federal immigration uh, responsibility. So for me, this would just create a bigger problem. It would create more fear. And it would really show that Oregon is is not inclusive, which is not what we're about, right? right. Immigrants have really are what makes Oregon thrive most of the time, you know? <laughs> we need to understand our neighbors and get to know each other more. And with me, I definitely love working with the youth because they have so much passion and they want to see a change and they want their voices to be heard. And they're doing it for their families because their families have also done so much to be here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where really I stand. I want to make sure that the youth have support and they have mentorships and they don't feel like they're somewhere where they don't belong. Because the rhetoric from the president and all this, you know, anti-immigrant movements and racism, like just really being blatant in your face is making students feel unsafe in schools, is making them be scared of like, what if, you know, what happens if my mother comes and picks me up? And that is is traumatizing. And there's already enough going on with families being separated at the border and kids being in cages that the Latinx community is already feeling like a target. And that's not even including the Muslim community that's also going to affect Mm -hmm. them. I don't see how that's the American way. I'm going to go back a little regarding the measure, the no on measure 105. Mm -hmm. And Alexandra brought up a really excellent point about racially profiling our folks. I have four sons, three of them that have served in the military, not because I really wanted them to serve, but they (laughs) needed college money. And and I look at my sons and they're just as uh, this beautiful olive skin like me. And I worry about them driving out and being pulled over by the police because of the color of their skin. No on Measure 105 is crucial. It's a vote no on that Mm -hmm. because we definitely want to make sure that our community is safe. You know, they've got to go to the market. They've got to go to the doctors. They have to take their children to school. How can they do that when they have to live in fear? We're here today making sure that every person that is listening to your show, that they're out in their community talking to their neighbors, to their family, making sure that this is something that we're not going to allow to pass. I haven't heard of ICE really being around here. They're not very welcome as compared to other places they might be. What's your experience? Have they actually been knocking on any doors? Well, I'll tell you that I I believe it was about a month ago we heard about the office because they do have an office in Medford. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know how many uh, officers they have there from ICE, but uh, we had gotten calls from our community about seeing some ICE vans, like in the Walmart area, in the Winkle area. And we have with UNITE, which is our farm worker advocacy group, they have what's called SORT, S-O-R-R-T, which is a Southern Oregon uh, rapid raid response team. So what we do is that we get a call. We go out and investigate the area and see, you know, kind of what's called a a legal observer so that we can see what's going on in the community. But uh, I personally haven't, the calls that we've gotten, we've gone to the location and we haven't seen anything about ice coming into our, into our Rogue Valley. 
So I'm, I'm happy for that. But our community is still in fear. You know, they're in fear of being out and about. I will be hosting our faith leaders and the Spanish and the English faith leaders come together and talk about some of the issues of Measure 105, how we want to defeat that. Mm -hmm. And also the whole campaign that we're working on. We all belong. We all vote. Beautiful. I love it. Thanks yes. very, Thank very you. much for being here. Thank you. That was an interview with Virginia Comberos and Alessandra De La Torre from Unite Oregon, as interviewed by Dave Hyde for the program We the People, produced at KSKQ Ashland. Thanks to all the supporting stations, KSKQ Ashland, KMUN Astoria, KPOV Bend, KVOO Portland, and KMUZ Turner and Salem. Thanks to the Blue Dot Sessions and the Free Music Archive for background music. Stay tuned to a radio near you for more from Oregon Community Media. We'll be working to strengthen the independent station serving audiences from Florence to Fossil. Our next collaborative programming will be election night, November 6th. Ask your local station about the statewide election results coverage and let them know what you think about this collaboration. This is Erin Yankee from KBOO. Thanks for listening.